Hey, this is Brian with Mid-City Vineyard. Mid-City Vineyard is located right in the heart of New Orleans, Louisiana on Canal Street. We meet on Saturday nights at 6 o'clock and would love for you to join us anytime you are around. You can learn a little bit more about us on Facebook, Mid-City Vineyard, Instagram, at Mid-City Vineyard, and of course online, midcityvineyard.org. Over the last number of weeks, we've been in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, but this week we took a little bit of a break. We uh, decided that we were going to look at different views of war as seen within the Christian tradition over the centuries. And so today we're going to be looking at the idea of just war, the idea of nonviolence and pacifism, and the idea of just peacemaking. We hope you enjoy. If you have any questions, let us know. We're doing a Q&A next week at Mid-City Vineyard. So much peace to you. Here's the thing. When it comes to uh, war, and when it comes to rumors of war, it really is incredibly important for the church to know where the church stands. It's really important that followers of Jesus would have a, a thought process and not just be willy-nilly on, well, I just, I just go the way of the government or I just go the way of the country that I'm currently uh, living in or, or whatever it might be. And, and, and here, if I could give you a, a very uh, concrete reason why, uh, this would be my reason. The largest Protestant church in Germany in the 1930s was the German Evangelical Church. And it was throughout uh, the entire country. And it, it contained the, the German Evangelical Church included all types of traditions that had emerged from the Reformation. And so there were Lutheran churches, Reformed churches, United churches. And then on top of that, uh, most of Germany's 40 million Protestants at the time in the 30s were part of that movement. On top of that, there were other uh, churches, the Methodist and the Baptist. Now, in the 1920s, the uh, historically German evangelical church viewed itself as one of the pillars of German culture, German society, and they were theologically grounded in a tradition of loyalty to the state. Okay, so this was in the 20s and 30s. The church, theologically grounded as married to the state. In the 20s, there was another movement that emerged from the evangelical church called the Deutsch Christen, which meant the German Christians. And these people, along with the German evangelical church, embraced many of the nationalistic and racial aspects of the, uh, of the Nazi ideology. So once the Nazis came to power in the 30s, this group sought the creation of a national Reich church and supported a Nazified version of Christianity. It's very important that you understand that in Germany in the 30s and in the 40s, the church, the majority of the church, was behind Hitler and was behind what the Nazis were doing. And we look at it now and we say, no, it can't be. They were able to gain so much ground because they were so married to the state. The Nazis were able to gain so much ground because the church was so married to the state 
that even the church came alongside and endorsed what was taking place. Just read the history books. So much so that after 1945, the silence of the church leadership and the widespread complicity of ordinary Christians during that time so compelled the leaders of the church to address the issues of guilt and complicity that took place during the Holocaust. And that is a process, even in Germany, that is still taking place in Germany and internationally today. So, even as we jump in today, some people have already asked the question, you know, we're going to talk about war, and we're going to talk about just war, and we're going to talk about peacemaking and all these things, but what about the Holocaust? That's always the question. What about the Holocaust? My question would be this. <laughs> would we have to ask the question of what about the Holocaust if the church would have gotten in on what Jesus was doing on the front end of the war? See, we always want to look back at it and say, well, I mean, what, what about but you see, when the church was supporting what was already taking place, what happens on the front end? It really matters what we believe about this stuff. It really matters that we have imaginations and minds and souls and spirits and hearts that are being formed by the life and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so that's, that's why we're going to take a minute to look at this this evening. So records of war have been being kept for the last uh, 5,000 years. So since it was around 3,000 BCE that they started keeping records of wars. And there's something, if we, if we want to tr trace this back, it's really important to realize there is something incredibly unique and beautiful about the Christian story. Something so beautiful that it dates back all the way to the, the Hebrew and what is now the Christian narrative of creation itself. Do you realize that if you contrast the Christian creation narrative that's found in Genesis to other creation narratives that were uh, being written around the same time, and, and, and don't ever forget that we have Genesis as Christians. That's the creation myth or the creation narrative that we look to as to how God began things. But lots of other cultures have creation myths and creation narratives. The Babylonians had creation narratives. The Egyptians had creation narratives. What is so unique about the Genesis account in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is that the creation narrative from a Hebrew, from a Christian standpoint, the narrative expresses that God in God's goodness and God's mercy and God's grace and God's beauty and God's love, God created creation and humanity. In all of the other creation narratives, creation was created through war between the gods. So you actually have different gods who are waging war against one another, that, and that's how creation came to be in Roman myths, in Babylonian myths, Assyrian myths, Egyptian myths. So from the very beginning in, in, in Christian tradition and Christian scripture, there's something tracing all the way back that we understand that the way that God has always, Yahweh, as God of creation is known in the, in the Hebrew scripture, there, God has always had an idea that creation is, there's, it's filled with peace and it's holy and it's beautiful and it's graceful. And from the very beginning, this has always been the plan in Christian understanding, in Christian creation. And that's very important to realize because 
going through the centuries, what we will find as we're going to walk through this tonight is that war obviously happens. War has been happening as we have records of it for the last 5,000 years and had to be happening for thousands and thousands and thousands of years before that. War does happen, but that's not how it was created from the beginning in the Christian creation narrative. Now, when it comes to Christians over the last number of centuries and Christians' understanding of war, early Christian statements against war are across the board. I mean, they are everywhere. Justin Martyr, uh, who lived, uh, I think it was around uh, 1 or 200 A.D., (laughs) said this, said, We once killed each other, but now we no longer take up sword against nation, nor do we learn war anymore, because we as Christians have become children of peace. The early church, from the very beginning, actually denounced war. So the early church, after Jesus, denounced war just flat out across the board. Now, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to walk through a couple of different understandings and traditions that Christians have held about war, because you need to kind of think through and wrestle with this on your own. You know, I, I could get up here and just teach one way, um, and, and I have, for me personally, I have one way. But instead of just teaching what, what I believe, I think it's more, much more fair to give you what traditionally the church has taught and thought based off of scholars and what they understand Scripture to say so that you can wrestle with the Holy Spirit on your own and make some, de- some decisions. But it's, you need to be educated. We need to think this through. But do keep this in mind. The early church from Jesus until uh, around 350 A.D. denounced war. For 300 years, Christians were virtually unanimous in denouncing Christian participation in battle. So much so that one of the early church fathers, a man by the name of Tertullian, actually (laughs) advised soldiers who were inscripted already in the army that if they became followers of Jesus, they either needed to get out of the military or they needed to lay their swords down and allow themselves to be martyred. I mean, now that's fairly intense. Would you agree? (laughs) That's, I think that's fairly intense. And here's why. Because the new reality that the early church fathers understood as Jesus lived it and preached it is that Jesus was preaching and living out nonviolence. So now we look at this and we say, okay, we think about nonviolence, we we look at the world that we live in, and we wonder how that is even possible. Since 1900, more people have been killed in war in the previous 5,000 years combined, since 1900. Now, can you, can you understand why? It's because of where our weapons have gone. So since 1900, I mean, with what's happened with our weaponry and with our arsenals, more people have died in war in the last 117 years than died in all 5,000 years previously combined. Now, we live, check this out, this next, we live in a world that has 196 countries. Of those 196 countries, nine of those countries have nuclear weapons. This is the world we live in. There are currently 15,000 nuclear weapons on the planet. 90% of the world's nuclear weapons are possessed by two countries, the United States and Russia. So the U.S. and Russia have 90% of all of the world's nuclear weapons. But check this out. Scientists actually tell us that if 100 nuclear bombs were detonated, that that's all it would take to wipe out the world's population. If 100 nuclear bombs, keep in mind there's 15,000 on the planet. 
If 100 nuclear bombs were detonated, here's what would happen. Those 100 nuclear bombs would release 11,023,113,109 pounds of black soot that would rise up to the Earth's stratosphere and block out the sunlight. Once it blocks out the sunlight, it would produce a sudden drop in global temperatures, and that would last approximately 25 years and destroy the Earth's ozone layer. By destroying the Earth's ozone layer, we would no longer be able to grow crops, food would go away, there would be famine across the board, and within 25 years, everyone would be completely dead. (laughs) So we can effectively, as human beings, we can effectively destroy humankind with 100 nuclear bombs, and yet we have 15,000 that are, are currently and continuing to build up these arsenals more and more and more. Now here's the problem that I understand with when it comes to these thoughts on war. There's nothing particularly in the Bible that simply says, believe this about war. It's like we talked last week. When you go to the scripture, you have to look at the scripture and you have to start to say, okay, what do I gather from the scripture and then what do I cooperate with the community of faith and with the spirit of God and how do these pieces and traditions. So you have spirit of God, community of faith, scripture, and and, uh, um, uh, tradition. And you have these things that you work together to find out, so what is God saying to us here and now? We can gather from Scripture, and this is an argument that I hear often. Well, war is simply a reality of the world we live in. Therefore, we just have to accept it. Well, rape is also a reality of the world that we live in. But none of us would say we should just accept it. Right? Right. Greed is a reality of the world that we live in. But we would not agree that we just accept it. Or torture. Or any number of things. So just to say, well, it's just a reality. It is a reality. But what does that mean still for us as Christians? So we'll look in the scripture as we move into this. And so I'm, I'm going I'm to pray for us once more and just because I think, you know, I can, I can just talk and you can hear words or the Spirit of God can just really begin to help some things resonate within us. So Lord, again, would you open us up to what you have to say? I Lord, the things that I say, the, you know, if I say something stupid or off base, just let it slip by. Um, and Lord, may your words uh, be heard in our hearts and our souls tonight. We say, come Holy Spirit and do what you want to do in this place with us so that we might indeed be salt and light and allow our good deeds to shine to the whole world around us as, as we talked about last week. So welcome Holy Spirit. Amen. In Matthew 5, chapter uh, 43 through 48, here's, here's the key passage for us. Jesus says this. He says, listen, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your, enemy, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you this, love your enemies and pray for the ones who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Basically, that you would look like your Father in heaven. For God is the one that causes the sun to rise and shine on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, big deal. Even bad people do that, basically. But if you greet, and if you greet only people who are like you, big deal. 
Everyone does that. But instead, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Love those who don't love you. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor as yourself. In Romans, the next one, Micah, in Romans chapter 12, this is a, 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 the other key passage for us. Paul says this. He says, listen, don't repay evil for evil. Now, listen, I, I know a lot of times we hear these passage and, passages and we say, wow, that's so noble and that's so amazing. and It's such a good idea. But I think that Jesus and I think that Paul were actually giving us ways to life, ways to experience life in different ways. Don't repay evil for, or, yeah, don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing so, you'll heap burning coals on their head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what we do is we are invited to follow Jesus' lead. And that's what Jesus' followers or followers of Jesus are invited to do, right? Followers of Jesus are invited to follow Jesus' lead, his words and his life. What did his words and his life look like? Jesus is known, one of the names of Jesus as the Christ is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is known as a peacemaker. Jesus is known as the one who does not exact revenge. Jesus is known as the one, and what Jesus did on the cross is that Jesus actually overcame violence, but not with more violence. Jesus overcame violence by allowing all of the violence of humanity and darkness to be exacted out on himself, and thus taking it on himself, going to the cross, dying, and coming back from the dead. And when Jesus comes back from the dead, what he is basically saying is violence and death and darkness don't have the power that they used to have because now I've taken that power back. Now those things still exist until Jesus returns. But Jesus has overcome those things. And the way Jesus did it was non-violently. That's why Jesus preaches nonviolence. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And truthfully, it is difficult to love your enemies when you're killing them. Is one of Jesus' main points. Jesus taught us things like go the extra mile. But he didn't just teach us that. He showed us what that looks like. Jesus taught us things like work towards reconciliation. He didn't just teach it, but he showed us. And so here's what it looks like. If following Jesus is what we're called to do, if that's the case, then dancing on the lawn when Osama bin Laden is killed is not really an option for a Christian. Fire and fury, like the likes of which the world has never seen, is not really an option for a Christian. Now, when Osama bin Laden was killed, as a Christian, was there a part of you that went, well, I don't feel so bad about that. Probably. That's a different thing, though, than many Christians who were literally dancing on the lawn. See, so, we're, and we, but what we have to do is we have to begin to, to think through what does it mean to actually look like and follow Jesus? Would Jesus dance on the lawn? Is Jesus excited about fire and fury of the likes of which the world has never seen? 
I will say no. I just unabashedly, no, that Jesus is not. And so what do we do? Where do we find a balance here? What's, what, do we, what do we do? So what are the options? If, if being you know, overly excited about those things are not the option, then what are the options? Well, there are options, I believe, and that's, that's, let's look at that. Because throughout the centuries, literally, we're in 2017, so for the last 1,700 years, the church has found a couple of options that they have tried to work through. And you might find one of these options that works for you. The first option is what is known as just war. Just war. And you've probably heard of this because this is used often in the church. Just war is a theory going all the way back to the 4th century A.D. And Augustine, based off of many of the Stoic philosophers' teachings from that time, Augustine is the one who built this idea, or actually put, put um, um, uh, bones and skin to the idea of just war. Now, the interesting thing about Augustine is that Augustine actually believed that Christians had no right to defend themselves from violence. However... Augustine identified a problem that no earlier theologian had apparently faced, and that was the loving obligation to use violence, if necessary, to defend innocent people against evil. Okay? So just war, Augustine's idea is, I might not be able to defend myself against violence, is how Augustine might have said it. He said, but there's got to be a way to defend innocent people against violence that takes place. And his teaching dominated the church for centuries, and still today. Now, here's the argument for just war, and this is what you would want to think through. Just war, first off, does not mean justified war. That's, it's not short for justified. Some people would say that, but that's not what it means. Because for Christians, there, there really is never a justified reason. Because remember, war involves killing people, and so we, we believe that really Jesus has shown us the way of not killing people. So we're not trying to justify killing people, but we are trying to figure out what, what do we do in these situations where maybe innocent people are being annihilated. Just war was developed to make sense of how to be in a violent world and to do one's best to stand for the things that Jesus stood for. And just war makes the logical point that in order to justify killing that occurs in war, there must be a reason so important that it overrides the fact that killing is wrong. That's, this is where Augustine goes with this. Now, there are a couple of criteria that go along with this. So let's, I, I put these on your, on your outline so that you can walk through this over the week to come. But here are the criteria when it comes to just war. First off, these are, these are basically the rules uh, for just war. First off, there has to be just cause. War can be waged only to stop a long-lasting violation of the rights of life, liberty, and community of large numbers of people. So there has to be a just cause in order for someone to sign off on the idea of just war. There also has to be just authority, which means that, uh, like, so in this country, it would a Christian would push for, if, they, if a Christian lines up with just war, it means that the Christian would obviously push for all the right channels always being gone through, which would be um, uh, Congress, you know, which would be working with the United Nations and, and those kinds of things along the way. 
The third criteria is that just war is only doable if it is the last resort, which means that all means of negotiation, all means of conflict resolution, all means of prevention have been exhausted before resorting to war. And the, the logic is what justifies the killing in war is that the only way to stop this evil, that's what provides the just cause. Therefore, if evil can be stopped any other way besides violence, then it's not the last you don't go to you don't go to war. The fourth is just intention. This is very important when you think through this as a Christian. Just intention, the only legitimate intention is to secure a just peace for everyone involved. Revenge, conquest, economic gain, or ideological supremacy do not make reasons for just war, which pretty much just ruled out every war. Possible. Maybe not all. But it does cause one to rethink well, what about, what about uh, uh, the war after 9-11? Was it based off of finding peace for all, or was it based off of revenge or conquering? I, you know, and different people are going to have different thoughts on these things, but you, you, I think we can pretty much kind of see that we probably, the, the, the United States probably wouldn't have gone anywhere for war had planes not flown into buildings. So it might have, there might be a tinge of revenge there. The fifth thing is the probability of success. It's wrong to enter into a war that will kill many people in order to achieve a more important goal if the country waging that war will probably lose and not achieve the goal. One war we can talk about is Vietnam because it seems like no one was a fan of Vietnam in the United States. Here's something that's very interesting. The Pentagon papers revealed in, in different reports that the Pentagon had calculated in advance that there was a very reasonable chance that it would not be successful in Vietnam. One, and statistics are crazy, but anywhere from one and a half million to three million people were killed in the Vietnam War. And according to the Pentagon, the Pentagon papers and the reports that were released, the United States pretty much knew it did not have a very good chance of actually accomplishing its goals. That would come under probability of success. The next one would be proportionality of cost. Understanding that the victory outweighs what happens if, if, if the war does not take place. The seventh thing is a clear announcement, uh, which seems to go against all rules of war to give a clear announcement that, uh, to declare war. And then the, four, the eighth thing is that the war must be fought by just means. And the question there today that one would have to ask is, what does it mean to fight a war by just means? I would suggest that nuclear weapons are not a just means. I'm not really sure what constitutes just means these days. But we know that if 100 nuclear bombs go off and we're all dead and the planet ends, that's obviously not a just means. So those, that would be the criteria for just war. And so you might really find yourself in a place of saying, you know what, just war makes sense to me because innocent people die and it needs to be stopped and there needs to be peace brought to that area or those people. But you have to weigh it out against 
What are the criteria? Now, here are the arguments against it. No Christian, authoritative Christian body has ever, prior to a war, decreed that one side was justified and that a war could be just. So this has not ever happened in the history of warfare. No authoritative Christian body has ever decided that there would be a war that was just. So that that would argue against it. Uh, Some people argue that um, Christian churches often have simply used the just war criteria to endorse the side that they find themselves on. That's another argument that people have used against just war. I'm not telling you these are my arguments. These are the arguments that other people have used. Um, One of the other arguments against just war is the fact that the criteria themselves are not bad. The argument is that the criteria have been subjected to a myth of redemptive violence. The criteria themselves have been subjected to this idea that violence can defeat violence. And then the other objective is that by killing the oppressive ruler, it makes we ourselves become killers. That's that's an argument against. Now think through that one for a minute. When we come back to, we like to believe, this is another argument against, that the final violence that we will put towards a person or a ruler will eradicate evil and make the future make future violence completely unnecessary. That's how we like to think. And it's not just us. The Spanish like to think like this. The Italians like to think like this. The Europeans like to think like this. Africans like, I mean, everybody, whatever, whoever's thinking about doing whatever, you know, if we could just, remember how we talk about this all the time, if I could just eliminate that person from my life, I don't mean murder them, but if I could just eliminate them, cut them out of my life, then my life would be so much better. Isn't it weird how someone else always fills that spot, though? So you got to think about this. You know, the, the thought was, if Osama bin Laden could simply be eliminated, then the world will be a more peaceful place. And lo and behold, we have something now by the name of ISIS, which is, seems much crazier than anything Osama bin Laden had ever thought of. So this idea, so you can land wherever you want, but we have to come to grips with the fact that Violence only breeds more violence, only breeds more violence, only breeds more violence. And the last argument against it is that Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to show us what God looks like. Comes to show us what the life of the future looks like. A life of no violence, a life of no war, a life of peace, a life of reconciliation, a life of working towards goodness and truth. So that would be one argument, just war. That might be the place where you find that you would land. The next is on the other side. These are, remember, these are two primary Christian traditions. Just war over here. The other one is, <laughs> so just war at least puts it in a place where there can be reason, I guess, for war. The other one is nonviolence pacifism. Now, uh, nonviolent pacifists, uh, Well, let's look at it. These are the folks who are completely nonviolent and completely passive. They are committed to nonviolence as a rule, as a way of life. Now, for the first 300 years of the church, this is what the church was. They were just passive. 
just allowed, allowed themselves. They said, no, no violence for us, and allowed themselves to what, whatever comes will come. Christian pacifism uh, takes the way of Jesus. This is the argument for it. And the witness of the New Testament as authoritative for the witness. So it goes back to loving your enemies, uh, uh, um, praying for those who persecute you, but to the nth, nth degree. And the argument for it is that the point is to be faithful to the way of Jesus, the way Jesus taught nonviolence, and the way Jesus showed us on the cross. The pacifist is committed to making a very clear witness to the way of Jesus. Now, the pacifist isn't around very long, usually. But the idea is that they would make a very clear witness. And in this view, trying to make that witness while advocating killing enemies is wrong, not only because it advocates killing people, but it also directly disobeys Jesus and it distorts the Christian witness. That's the argument for nonviolence and pacifism. Now, if you're anything like me, you're less inclined to sign up for this one because it just seems stupid and a little bit too radical. I want to suggest, and this is why I asked the Holy Spirit to, to show up and that it not just be words that we're hearing tonight, but that we actually wrestle, because what does God say? I mean, what is Jesus' model? Is this the way? Now, like, let us not just say, oh, I'll put that on the shelf. I'm done with that because that's stupid. And uh, I'll just go the just war because at least we get to kill somebody if they need killing. I get it. I really, I mean, I get it. But what if that's not what God's doing? What if it is what God's doing? I don't. Just don't, just don't lock it out yet. Here's the argu other arguments against this nonviolence uh, pacifism. Uh, lots of people have actually taken it on as a legalistic rule. And so because it's a legalistic rule, they're not even doing it out of something that the Spirit of God's doing in their lives. They're just saying, well, this is just how it is. And it becomes a legalistic thing, just like so many other parts of Christianity. It becomes just, uh, it's for them, it's black and white. And, you know, if you've been around Mid-City Vineyard any amount of time, you know that things, especially the way we teach around here and the way we work through life, things are not black and white. Most of life is gray. And so how do we live in the gray if we're, you know, if we think everything is simply black and white? And I would suggest, and, and this is what others would suggest, um, uh, the argument against nonviolence and pacifism is that Jesus' teachings aren't just prohibitions, but Jesus is actually trying to get people's lives and hearts and spirits and souls to be transformed. So it's not just, well, you know, this is what, this is what Jesus says, therefore I'm just going to do it, and nothing ever changes on the inside. Does that make sense to you? And so it's not just this is how it has to be. Now, because we live in a very gray world, there is a third way. You have just war. Christians have lined up there. You have nonviolence and pacifism. Christians have lined up there. But what if there's some type of third way, which I think that in most areas of faith there is a third way. The third way is what many scholars refer to as just peacemaking or pacifist peacemaking. There are two types of pacifists. There's the one with the V and there's the one with the F. And there is a difference. To be a pacifist with the V is the person that just, oh, you're here, I lay down and die. 
the pacifist, with the F is the person, the, the word, the Greek word actually literally means peacemaker. It is an active peacemaking. Now in a few weeks, we're going to talk about when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give them your uh, cloak if they, or give them your undergarments if they ask for your cloak. We're going to talk about all that stuff in a couple of weeks. But Jesus, what he's advocating there is active peacemaking. Not just, okay, I'll carry your bag another mile, but it's, it's, there's something very intentional and active taking place there. But for the sake of today's teaching... Here's what you need to know, because this is a potential third way. In the 1980s, major church groups got together because of what was happening with nuclear weapons, and they determined that there had to be a debate, uh, th there had to be a middle ground, because the debate between just war and pacifism was inadequate. It wasn't working. It, the, the discussion was too narrow, especially in the wake of newfound problems in the world, like terrorism. So there were some people, thoughtful people, who began to get into the debate of what's right, what's wrong, when, when to make war, how to, how to bring about peace. And the just make, uh, peacemaking theory begins to, ref uh, begins to fulfill the original intention of the other two paradigms. So it comes in the middle here. It encourages peacemaking. It calls just war theorists, so if you find that you're lining up, potentially lining up there, just peacemaking says to just war theorists that you need to enhance the content of your underdeveloped principles of last resort and just intention. Like, if you're going to be just war, then really get in on what it is to be just war. Here's the argument for it. It begins to fit Jesus' teaching of transforming hearts, minds, and souls more than just laying down and dying and more than going to war. Because Jesus didn't just teach to not do violence. Jesus actually taught to take part in going further in reconciliation. Jesus actually taught going further in peacemaking initiatives. And so there are a couple of practices when it comes to just peacemaking. First, support nonviolent direct action. Meaning, use your voice, but also use your life. There's something strong to be said about using your life, not just being a slacktivist. You know, like you can post great ideas on Facebook all day. But that, there's actually a term these days called slacktivism. You know, people are like, well, I posted on Facebook that, you know, white supremacy is bad. So, you know, I did my part. No, there's, there's actually, you know, what actions come along with that? Hopefully, as Christians, you understand that white supremacy is bad. Hopefully I understand that. But, but what good is that if you don't live it out? It, there's got to be, you know, there's got to be something to it. So... We engage and we support nonviolent direct action. Think Gandhi, think Nelson Mandela, think MLK. The second thing is you would take independent initiatives to reduce threats. Now, here's, the, here's where this is going to go. Well, what do we do when it comes to government and governments going to war, supposedly you know, on our behalf, and we don't want them to? 
Well, there are different things along the way that you do. I'm just going to give you these basic seven, but I'm going to spend most of my time or the, just the last few minutes that we have on number seven. But taking independent initiatives. This is organizing things, you know, in, in churches, in neighborhoods, getting the conversations moving forward. This is imploring political leaders and letting people know where we stand on things. I mean, there, there are things that can be done. Number three, using cooperative conflict resolution. This is good when there's about to be a war in your house or in the world. Cooperative conflict resolution, often overlooked. Number four, acknowledge responsibility for the conflict. Acknowledge responsibility for the part that we have played. Oh, I've never, you know, I don't really play into that. Listen, you're part of, you're part of society. <laughs> we can be a part of the solution. And most of us are already part of the problem along the way somehow, some way, shape, form. Just how do we begin to work in our own circles on being part of the solution? Number five, we promote human rights, religious liberty. See, a lot of uh, Christians, especially in America, are all about religious liberty as long as they understand that people are going to be Christians. That's not religious liberty. You can't just promote you know, freedom of religion if you're only promoting freedom of the religion that you line up with. That, that doesn't work. I, which means that, especially in a Christian's heart, we make movements towards Muslims. You make movements towards Buddhists and towards Hindus. You make movements towards atheists and towards agnostics. As opposed to, no, 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 this, uh, I believe in freedom of religion as long as your religion lines up with mine. That, that just breeds more dissension. What is the Holy Spirit doing in those relationships? And what's the Spirit of God calling you towards in those relationships? Number six is fostering sustainable uh, economic development. We can do that in our own city, in our own streets. And then how does that play into larger global um, arenas? And then number seven, encourage grassroots peacemaking groups and voluntary, voluntary associations. This is the one that I am I'm most passionate about because I think this is where we start. I mean, we're a group of 50. What, what do I do? What do I do? Start where we are. What does it look like for us to begin to allow the Spirit of God to transform our hearts, to transform our minds away from maybe other areas that we've been and allowing, you know, what does it look like to get grassroots? What does it look like to engage in conversation? What does it look like to engage in uh, helping our community right here when it comes to socioeconomic development? What does it look like when it comes to uh, uh, being part of our community when it comes to racial relations and things like that? What does that look like? So here's just a few more notes for you. The human response. We know this. We took Psychology 101 at some point. The human response is fight or flight. The natural human response. I believe the, uh, it comes from the uh, hypothalamus. It's fight or flight. Something comes our way. I'm either going to fight or I'm going to run. I'm either going to fight or I'm going to lay down and die. But what about a third way? Is that possible? Because Jesus' teaching on nonviolence forms the charter for a new way of being in the world. 
The world and history do not get to tell you how you are supposed to respond. The Spirit of God gets to tell you that. The Spirit of God is allowed to transform you. The Spirit of God gets to move and shape your heart and your soul and your mind. As a Christian, the Spirit of God gets to do that. So we don't have to listen to how we've always been taught a particular way. We don't have to repay every evil for evil. We don't have to mirror the evil that we're fighting against. And that's what most of us have been taught, is we mirror that evil in order to take out that evil so that we become victorious. Only the problem is there's always something lurking behind it. And, and make sure you understand this. Nonviolence, as we're talking about it tonight, in pacifism with the F. Don't let it be, don't let me, don't, don't let yourself think that I'm saying that it avoids conflict because the peace that Jesus seems to bring is never about the absence of conflict. Matter of fact, if you read the Gospels, it seems that what Jesus is often doing is it's bringing up conflict. When Jesus comes and when the Spirit's moving in certain arenas, it seeks out conflict. It elicits conflict. It exacerbates the conflict in order that the conflict might be confronted and dealt with. So those would be the arguments for just peacemaking. The arguments against just peacemaking, you might die. That is an argument. Probably in this country, you won't. You know what might happen in this country is you'll be persecuted. And when I say that, what I mean is probably the most persecution that any Christian in this country will ever get is the Christian who stands up to says, I don't want to do the whole violence thing. And then the persecution that most of those Christians will receive oftentimes will come from other Christians. It's an interesting thing. You know why? Because we believe, as Americans, maybe it's as human beings, we believe in the myth of, human, uh, of redemptive violence. We simply have bought in. And the myth of redemptive violence is every bit as tenacious, it's every bit as seductive as the bondage to alcohol and to drugs. We love our violence. We love it. And until we come to realize how much we love it, we won't be able to be set free from it. And if, if that, you know, and that, that, that one might rattle us, but think about how do we respond. I, Bring this way down. Dial it down. We're not talking North Korea or America. We're talking your office. When that jerkwad does whatever they do to just drive you crazy. They slight you with whatever those words are. And what comes, what, what's that initial? It's let's get them back. How can I cut them the same way they cut me? That's, that's the myth of redemptive violence. And we're addicted to it. And until we come face to face with that and understand that we're basically codependent upon it, we, there, there can't be much change. I've never used the term jerkwad before. That's a really <laughs> bizarre term. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Here's how, here's how I'll finish this. 
The only way it's going to happen, the only way that the Spirit of God can begin to do anything is you have to say farewell to your fallback plan. When Christy and I were planting the church here, here, here's how it worked for me. Christy, we need to put everything we have into this. And we sense that God is saying, move in the mid-city, plant a church, be a part of this, do this, go for it. Let's pull the trigger, let's do this. And let's figure out a way to keep our house in Kenner and rent it in case the whole thing blows up and goes to pot. That way, we can go back to Kenner and we'll have a house and it's much, much cheaper than what's happening down here and you know, uh, you know, the water doesn't stay as long on the streets. And, I mean, things are just... Let's keep our fallback plan in place. And it was quickly that we realized that God was saying, I, you can't do this with a fallback plan. I want you to do it but you got to go all, all or nothing. Because as long as you have a fallback plan, you won't go all. There's always, always in the back of your mind, well, we could. In some ways, I think God was so excited about taking away the fallback plan that someone knocked on our door and offered us the exact number we needed for our house before we even told anyone the house was for sale. The fallback plan, as long, and this, listen, you just you need, to, you need to know this, as long as violence is part of your fallback plan, there can never truly be a shift towards what God, what more God might be doing. It, it's, it's, see, as long as violence is part of your fallback plan, it takes away your creativity. For what might happen going forward. <laughs> Last story, then we share communion together. Villanova philosophy professor Yannick Thiem grew up in a small German town of Wundseidel. I don't know German, so that seemed. Anybody know German? That was how you say it then. <laughs> and he recently told this story. <laughs> And I'm going to post a video of this later on on Facebook so you guys can watch this. But Because there's a video to go along with it. It says, in a very small town in Germany where Nazi former deputy to Adolf Hitler, his name was Rudolf Hess. He was buried there in Wundsedel. And every year on the anniversary of his death, right-wing activists have been showing up to commemorate his birthday and they marched through the streets. This still happens today. Counter-marches did not stop them. People were counter-marching. It did not stop them. But what got them was when a group of people organized a rally to sponsor donations on their behalf, treating the Nazi neo-Nazi march like an AIDS walk. And so for every meter that the neo-Nazis would march, there would be $11 donated to anti-racist organizations. 
And so the town got behind it in all kinds of ways. What they ended up doing is they've now turned it into a, a sporting event of sorts. And the people in the town who hate this because it comes to their town every year, they now make banners. They have bullhorns. They set up tables with bananas and snacks. And they encourage the marchers to keep going. Because for every meter the marchers march, 11 more dollars from various people are donated towards anti-racist organizations. So now the, 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 the neo-Nazis get there and the, the town has gone out and on the ground it says, once you cross this line, we will have raised $10,000. And they keep marching and they cross the line. And once they get to the finish line, they have huge banners and they have a big party for all the neo-Nazis to thank them for raising money for anti-racist organizations. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. And every year, fewer and fewer of these people show up in this town for this march. <laughs> now, as long as you are allowing certain fallback plans to be how you're going to combat this, that creative idea never comes to pass. No one ever thinks that we should use this. And this is also, I'm going to use the exact same example in a few weeks when we talk about turning the other cheek, because I cannot think of a better story of turning these things in on themselves. So what do you do with this? Because you're not going to stop North Korea from using their bombs. You're not going to stop the United States from using their bombs. I know that, and you know that. I'm a realist. What are you going to do, though? What am I going to do? What are we going to do a couple of thoughts for you first off i want to encourage you educate yourself start forming thoughts and opinions and ideas with the spirit of god take you can put that up there find a podcast find a book that gives you different perspectives than the ones you already hold on certain issues for instance i listen to one of the most amazing podcasts uh, with a girl by the name of Opal Tometi. Opal Tometi is the girl that founded Black Lives Matters. And you know, what you understand and what I understand perhaps about Black Lives Matters is nothing what Opal Tometi set out to do. You, we need to educate ourselves, be educated. Because Black Lives Matters, just so you know, is a good nonviolent organization that has gotten hijacked along the way, just like other good things get hijacked. Educate yourself. Listen. Open yourself up to a book, to a podcast. Allow yourself to be challenged in ways. And if you want, I'm going to post that podcast somewhere for you so you can listen to it and you can hear what Opal has to say. Uh, here's something else I would encourage everyone. Uh, spend time with someone who has different views than you. Spend time with people who have different views with you. As long as you only spend time with people who have the exact same views as you and you don't open up and you don't ask and you don't learn, then you will never change. And if our desire is to grow and mature as followers of Christ, then changing is part of that. Invite someone into your home, a neighbor. If you have Muslim neighbors, invite them into your home for dinner. If you have... Uh, if you're white and you have African-American neighbors, invite them in for, for conversation. If you're African-American and you have white neighbors, invite them in. For, I mean, just open ourselves up. May we do that. And then the third thing is ask this question when you're doing these things. Does it lead to greater love in my life? Or does it lead to greater anxiety and angst? 
See, because that's really the test, is if I'm growing in love, even if it goes against <laughs> things that I might have thought in the, in, in the past, wait a minute, I, maybe if I'm loving more, maybe I'm heading in the right direction. If I have more peace, even though it might come with a cost, what is God doing in this situation in my life? All right? Got that? Here's what I'd like to do. Because that was a lot. I know that. Thanks for hanging in there. I hope it's helpful in some way, shape, or form that you can take this and really think about and not just go with the flow, just what I've always done. Actually think about what God's doing in us as a church and in your life.